Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Haley Knoth, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Haley, hello. It's just us. Just us. No Amber. Yeah, no Amber this week. Uh, We will uh, be talking with her again next week. Before we get into a very interesting show, I did want to just kind of flag something. I was just, I still have cable. I'm old. I'm an old millennial, and I was flipping around the box yesterday. Love it. And I stumbled upon Mrs. Doubtfire. Haley, I presume you've seen it. I don't. Oh, have I? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I happened to land on one of the two, I think, court scenes in Mrs. Doubtfire. It's about, you know, it's a family that's going through a divorce. and Then there's other stuff that happens. Cross-dressing. Other other stuff. Subterfuge. uh, Robin Williams, voice theatrics, etc. But I did, the only reason I bring it up here is because I did want to say that even, there's only two scenes that in that movie that happened in a courtroom. But the judge who is hearing the case is like literally one of the most like convincing movie judges I've ever seen. Ooh, why do you say that? There's no specific thing. I mean, he's just like, it was directed by Chris Columbus and like he's not a showy director. There's no like creative sort of composition in the courtroom scenes. He's just like got the camera on the judge and he just kind of says, well, we will have a joint session when we reconvene. And like, it's like very tight angles and all this stuff. I just like believe the guy is a judge from the moment I saw him. Incredible. I, I need to rewatch. It's been, you know, probably 15 or 20 years since I last watched uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. So I need a refresh. But good to know it's just going to transport <laughs> me straight into a courtroom. Well, and even if you watched it like three years ago, you probably wouldn't have been locked in on these scenes. But um, anyway, this is like a that's like a low key, legally accurate movie in terms of like divorce court and more so the demeanor of judges, especially when at the end of the movie, he says that um, Robin Williams conduct is unorthodox, which means he was cross dressing as the family's housekeeper. (laughs) That's one way to describe it. Well, yeah. Well, again, I mean, I kind of think that that's how a judge would say that, like he would kind of mute it you know, understate it, certainly. But anyway, we have a awesome show. Haley, I know you uh, took point on the main segment this week. Uh, Why don't you tell the folks what they can expect later in the show? Yeah, I had a a very interesting conversation with one of our senior bankruptcy reporters, Vince Sullivan, who walked me through the oral arguments this week in the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy dispute involving the Sackler family's releases. Look, bankruptcy, we need someone like Vince to walk us through. Even saying that sentence, I was like, what is this sentence? But it's a fascinating case. And Vince is the man. So stick around for that. But before we get into that, I did want to uh, get us into some, some Florida politics here. You you ready for some Florida politics, Alex? I'm always kind of like at a baseline ready for some Florida politics, <laughs> but I do also know that this is underlaid with um, some very intricate litigation, which I find fascinating. And this was sort of like a follow-on from certain lawmaking. It's fascinating and involves 
Ron DeSantis and Disney World, and I'm eager to hear about it. Yes, it really has it all. So for over a year now, as you as you hinted, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been beefing with Disney. And as you may recall, last year, he eliminated the board that had previously overseen Disney's theme parks in the state since the 60s. So this was a you know really longstanding board. Disney had a good relationship with it, good working relationship. Um, and DeSantis got rid of that and installed his own board, which you know created much drama in and of itself. But this week, that DeSantis-appointed board unveiled a very lengthy report criticizing how its predecessor operated and notably accusing Disney of essentially bribing its members so that they would prioritize Disney's interests. Now, according to the new board, its predecessor facilitated, quote, the most egregious exhibition of corporate cronyism in modern American history. I said this uh, when we discussed DeSantis and Disney last on the show. You know, if you divorce it from, I know DeSantis is currently a candidate for the Republican presidential nomination. Even beyond that, I do find this litigation over the like underpinning government and quasi government structures that like prop up Disney within Florida to be fascinating. Yeah. And yeah, they're so well, unique, I mean, so novel. Well, and it, yes, and and as you said in your intro there, I mean this this reaches back decades to where they have acquired so much physical property that it is this like fiefdom. And it is you know, a magical kingdom, it one is, could say. It, it is the magical kingdom, and I have been like very fascinated by exactly what that means in a legal sense, but before we get to this, um, you're here talking to us about this report that talks about sort of like back dealing and all that stuff. We do need to reset a little bit. I've gestured to it here on exactly what is going on with the DeSantis versus Disney feud within Florida. This all goes back to March of last year when Disney's CEO at the time publicly opposed the Governor's Parental Rights and Education Act that is better known as the Don't Say Gay Law. That law prohibits public school teachers in Florida from teaching about or discussing sexual orientation or gender identity at certain grade levels. So very controversial law, made plenty of headlines. Disney CEO did not like it. Um, and after he expressed that opposition, DeSantis pushed for the passage of two laws, eliminating what was called the Reedy Creek Improvement District, and creating this new board called the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District. Now, Disney, as you can imagine, was not happy. The company very promptly accused DeSantis of retaliation. It says this whole thing is a violation of its First Amendment rights. And um, that's when we got into this litigation that you hinted at, Alex. They, you know, Disney sued the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District. The Oversight District has sued Disney. There are fights in federal court. There are fights in state court. Everyone is suing each other. Everyone is mad. That litigation is ongoing. And I do want to say this week's report isn't directly related to any of those courtroom disputes. It was created in compliance with one of those laws that eradicated the old board and created the new one. 
And that law basically just instructed the new district to prepare a study within a year of its creation. So that brings us to the new report. Yeah, and that's not a small distinction. The idea that, you know, the entire Disney empire had been effectively administered under some prior board, and then it sort of gets overtaken, not not overtaken, but gets sort of disrupted by the state. And then part of that process involves this, like, what's effectively an audit of the prior board's, you know, surveillance. What is the new board saying about what the prior overseers had done, you know, over this Disney property? The board really tore into Disney's dealings with its predecessor. And uh, forgive me, everyone, I'm going to note the page count again, because whenever <laughs> I'm the one who reported a story, I, uh, I'm i very sensitive to this. Uh, yeah, this, this is a Haley Knopf original. Yes. <laughs> this, this report was 80 pages long. So 80 pages of criticism and just absolutely tearing into Disney and the board, basically. The most headline-grabbing allegations here are that Disney treated board members like its own employees and gave them theme park tickets, big discounts, and other perks that the report said were akin to bribes. Disney also allegedly paid the property tax liabilities owed by many of the board's supervisors, and it even kept Reedy Creek employees on its own payroll until the late 1990s. That's all according to the report. The report focuses a lot on Reedy Creek Improvement District's beginnings. It said Disney misrepresented its intentions with the district, saying that, you know, it's an, it was it wanted to build this big theme park, but it also wanted to build a city with residential and commercial areas on top of the attractions. And touting this vision, the new board says Disney successfully lobbied for the creation of the district and clinched the authority to do all kinds of things. It can create and direct its own police and fire departments. It apparently can also build a nuclear power plant if it wants. I didn't know that. That well, was that's, interesting. Yeah, that, that, that's kind of what I was saying. I mean, the sprawl of the Disney empire is so vast. And again, I mean, this, its mere size has nothing to do with this um, fight about a Florida education law. But I just like, I'm fascinated by this... Uh, culture war inflection point that is now like picking at the scab of the corporate hierarchy and structure of Disney World, basically. Um, and, and, and the, um, and the outlying lands, but, um, yeah, that's a great, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, you were saying, I mean, there, there, there were initial plans when this, when this was laid down to basically create its own like actual functioning city. And it seems like that's maybe where it went sideways, no? Yes, that's what the report says. The The city never came to pass, nor did the affordable housing and transportation and other social and community services that Disney had promised. The board really emphasized that there are virtually no improvements that aren't geared toward tourists. So... You know, nothing for employees, nothing for Floridians. Here's a quote that I found rather entertaining on that. When Central Florida residents sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic on I-4, they should know that Disney bears significant blame. So we're, <laughs> we're even getting into traffic here. It's hey, like yeah. Disney, Disney didn't do what it promised. 
And the board says that Disney's true aspirations were to use the improvement district to tower over rivals and almost certainly dissuade others from even entering the arena of market competition. Yeah, I mean, it's that this is what I'm saying. I mean, it's, I can't imagine opening a business sort of within the physical realm of, of Disney World um, without some kind of approval or anything like that. You know, I mean, again, it's taking place in the context of a broader political fight. And this is the sort of newly installed board's impression of prior board. And now the Disney Corporation is sitting here uh, seeing this all play out. What was the company's impression of exactly what came out here in this new report? Disney really took aim at just the board itself. It issued a statement slamming the report as, quote, an exercise in revisionist history that is neither objective nor credible. The report, according to Disney, is merely trying to advance the DeSantis-appointed board's interests in what it described as wasteful litigation that could derail investment within the district. And Disney added that that board was appointed by the governor to punish Disney for exercising its constitutional right to free speech. So we're back. We're back to those retaliation claims. Of course. Yes. In the statement, Disney also touted its impact on the Florida economy over the past 50 years, basically saying, you know, this has been working great. Look at all we've done for the state. Last month, it actually issued a report on all of this. So I pulled some of those numbers. Disney said it brought in $40.3 billion in economic activity to the state in 2022. And it also says that it's responsible for about 263,000 direct and indirect jobs. So one out of every 32 jobs in the state, Disney is claiming credit for. Honestly, seems low to me, but... I know, (laughs) it kind of does. So, yes. you know, two, there are two very different pictures being painted here. And like you mentioned, this is all over this underlying law, um, which is quite interesting. This is also playing out in multiple courtrooms. So there's really a lot to keep following here. It remains to be seen how this report will be incorporated into any of these cases. So we'll just have to stay tuned. A super interesting story. I'm I'm glad we were able to devote some time to that. Uh, next, I want to turn to an interesting story in another direction, I think. We're talking today about a former North Carolina public defender who has sued the federal judiciary for botching an investigation into sexual harassment allegations that she made against a superior four years ago. Now, this is the kind of case that we would probably cover on pro se in any instance. You know, it's a public defender and she was forced out and is claiming sexual harassment that is like plainly newsworthy on its merits. But this one has a few interesting wrinkles, um, starting with the fact that the attorney who is filing this case, uh, this woman, her legal team now consists only of herself and her husband. So it's a husband and wife team litigating against the federal judiciary, also coupling that with the fact that the pair have no trial experience whatsoever. Sounds a little stressful. Would you, Alex, (laughs) would you, uh, I mean, your wife is a doctor, but say she's a lawyer. Would you tap her to, uh, to, to go to trial with you? I mean, I certainly would. I, I, (laughs) I feel like you have to say that. 
Well, yeah, I kind of have to, but I would say it in a, it, I mean, I would say it with like a thousand cc's of truth serum in my arm as well. But anyway, it's, um, it's a very interesting case and it's kind of extends beyond even the husband and wife aspect of it. The case was brought by a woman named Karen Devins Strickland, and she worked as an attorney in the Federal Public Defender's Office in North Carolina's Western Division until 2019. So again, we're talking federal court, the Western Division of North Carolina. And she resigned in 2019 following what she said was a botched investigation of a sexual harassment complaint against a supervisor of hers. So she resigned, and then within the next year, she sued the Judicial Conference of the United States the Administrative Office of U.S. Courts, which collectively basically combine what, what amounts to the policy-making arm of the federal judiciary. She also uh, sued the Fourth Circuit and a number of attorneys and officials that work within those entities. Now, the suit was thrown out at the district court level on pretty straightforward bases, but Last year, the Fourth Circuit threw Strickland a lifeline by reviving many of her claims, which kind of sends us back to the district court level in North Carolina for a trial. Suing the Fourth Circuit and then having the Fourth Circuit revive that suit, that's uh, something to grapple with here. What has gone on in the run-up to this trial? So there's been a lot that's gone on, and most of it has not been good for Strickland, who is the former attorney who's, um, or the former public defender who's bringing the case. Now, the most notable thing to know here is that earlier this year, her legal team, which had been described in the legal press as like a dream team, and it was comprised primarily of Harvard Law School professors and litigators, they abruptly walked off the case earlier this year, which left Strickland uh, to represent herself alongside her husband, who's also an attorney. His name is Cooper Strickland. Now, when they left the case, the Harvard lawyers cited irreconcilable differences, and they didn't elaborate on that at all. But subsequent court filings in the case suggest that this departure is probably related to this disagreement over secret recordings that Strickland made of colleagues talking in the workplace while she was still working in the public defender's office. So the DOJ is representing the federal judiciary in this retaliation suit, and they pressed her about the contents of these recordings and whether they contain like sensitive information that should have been turned over to the government, you can see how this gets hairy, right? Like the idea mm-hmm. that she was a federal government employee and she surreptitiously, she is alleged to have surreptitiously recorded conversations. And now the federal government lawyers who are litigating against her are pressing her on this and saying it, it was not appropriate for you to disclose things like that or bring that, like, I mean, to the extent you had those materials, you should have turned them over when you ceased to be a government employee. But in this deposition, Strickland basically just kind of refused to answer about any questions about um, whether those recordings contain sensitive information or anything like that. 
And while we can't exactly say this is why, because the withdrawal notice was just sort of facially neutral, her legal team withdrew shortly after this dust up about the recordings. The other thing that's happened in the run up to the case is that Strickland has moved to have the DOJ attorneys that are defending the judiciary disqualified from the case, but that was rejected by the judge. She was basically saying that they were trying to railroad her a little bit while they were questioning about this, about these recordings, but that got rejected by the court. Uh, She also was rejected by the court uh, in her request to avoid live testimony from herself. She did not want to take the stand in this civil suit, but the judge uh, rejected that request and he told her, quote, I would like to hear you testify in this case and give your testimony while I'm looking at you carefully and candidly and be subjected to cross-examination. So it's been a real roller coaster here because there was a loss at the district court level, a win at the Fourth Circuit, and now in all these pretrial motions, it's it's getting very dicey, but we are ready for a trial on this question of the handling of a sexual harassment claim next week. Sounds dicey indeed. I like the quote. I would like to hear you testify in this case while I'm looking at you carefully. That's uh, it's powerful stuff. Well, I think that speaks to what judges look for when they like are deciding how to conduct a trial, right? Like they, right? You know, like the idea of yeah, like you could just submit a brief or you know, and then then that and that happens all the time, but that's not the case here. So yeah. Well, so what might actually come of this trial? What what are the, you know, potential outcomes here? As a financial matter, Strickland has asked the court to hand her just shy of three and a half million dollars in lost wages. So that's just kind of what we're talking about in terms of money. But I did want to cast a light on a feature written by our own Haley Fowler, and she broke down some of the more systemic things at play here. The big issue here is that the federal judiciary has, in most cases, largely been exempt from federal discrimination laws, most notably Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And that is due largely to concerns about judicial independence of adjudicating such a claim. Now, Strickland's suit focuses on the process that that the judiciary uses when employees report harassment or discrimination, and that is called the Employment Dispute Resolution Process. And that is the only mechanism by which judiciary employees can sort of seek redress for harassment or discrimination in the workplace. But the attorneys that Haley talked to said that the EDR process, that employment uh, dispute resolution process, is administered a little bit unevenly, and it can be difficult to protect against retaliation when those EDR investigations get underway. Now, Strickland is looking to declare the entire process, the whole, that whole EDR process, unconstitutional. Because in her case, she alleges that it denied a neutral decision maker since her dispute involves the chief judge of the Fourth Circuit uh, and the circuit executive, and also that judiciary officials told her that the 
individual that was presiding over the EDR hearing was powerless to order any kind of remedy uh, incurred by her harassment. So she basically is alleging that this is a kangaroo court and it's not really, you know, materially up to the job of doing the thing that it says it should do. So obviously, if she should win on this on this case and say that this whole judiciary employment discrimination process is unconstitutional, that would be seismic. That is a huge decision. But also, uh, some of the people that Haley talked to in her uh, in her story say that even if she happens to lose, if it like goes all the way to a trial decision. That could spark discussions about changing that process, given the amount of attention that this case has attracted. So there are a lot of eyeballs on sort of the broader issue of how to police harassment and discrimination within the ranks of the federal judiciary employees. Four years ago, Purdue Pharma filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the midst of an avalanche of litigation stemming from the opioid epidemic. Filing for bankruptcy was part of Purdue's deal with two dozen state governments resolving claims that its OxyContin sales played a huge role in the epidemic. This week, the Supreme Court heard arguments over a key part of Purdue's proposed Chapter 11 plan. Purdue's owners, the Sackler family, have agreed to pay nearly $6 billion and in exchange, they'll be shielded from future claims stemming from the opioid crisis. While Purdue contends that these releases are part of long-standing bankruptcy precedent, the trustee's office says they are far too expansive. Here to walk us through this fascinating dispute is Law360 senior bankruptcy reporter Vince Sullivan. Vince, welcome to Pro Se. Thanks for having me to talk about this uh, critical bankruptcy issue. Yeah, we've talked about the litigation surrounding the epidemic before on the show, but we haven't really gotten into the weeds on the bankruptcy case. Initially, I know the Sackler family agreed to contribute a smaller amount, $4 billion in exchange for releases. Can you bring us up to speed on how we got from there to the $6 billion figure? Sure. So at the outset of the bankruptcy case, you're right, there was about a little more than $4 billion pledged by the members of the Sackler family that are still involved with the ownership of the company. Over the years uh, of that the case has been pending, that number creeped up a little bit, uh, closer to $5 billion. By the time the plan was confirmed in the fall of 2021, that's where that amount stood. Now, the $6 billion figure came after an appeal to the New York District Court. Uh, where the plan was reversed uh, over the release issue. A judge there said these releases are not permitted by the bankruptcy code. After that, the parties went back to the table. The Sacklers pledged additional money and got that figure up to about $6 billion that they're going to contribute in exchange for these broad releases of liability. So what is the trustee's role here and why are they taking such issue with these releases? So the U.S. trustee program was created by Congress to take on some of the administrative burden that bankruptcy judges had been performing themselves over the years. Uh, they serve mostly as a watchdog to ensure that debtors and other parties in a bankruptcy uh, comply with the rules of the code 
procedures, things like that. In the last four or five years, though, they've really taken a hard line against these non-consensual third-party releases. It's been a real critical area of focus of, of enforcement for the office. And in this case, the trustee has taken an even harder line, uh, saying that these releases are just plainly not allowed without the consent of a creditor that's giving up their claim. So the U.S. trustee in this case has said this is an issue of statutory construction. They've taken Section 1123B6 of the Bankruptcy Code that says what is allowed to be included in a Chapter 11 plan. It delineates specific things. And then there's this catch-all provision in Section B6 that says a plan can include any other appropriate provision not inconsistent with the applicable provisions of this title. The word appropriate was focused on a lot during oral arguments. And uh, the U.S. trustee says that eliminating the property right of a creditor is not appropriate without their consent. So I take it Purdue and the Sackler family, though, on the other hand, are saying, no, this totally is appropriate. Is that kind of the, the gist of their response here? That's exactly right. Purdue and the uh, Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors that represents the individual claimants who say they've been injured by the company uh, related to the opioid crisis say that this is the most appropriate thing that's ever happened in bankruptcy. Uh, without this deal, without the releases going to the Sacklers and without the billions of dollars flowing into the company, there won't be anything for individual creditors, state and local governments, any other creditor to collect. The company has about $2 billion in assets, and uh, conveniently or inconveniently, depending on which party you are, there's about $2 billion in government penalties being assessed against the company. Now, under the settlement, the government has agreed to forego most of that collection, and the Sacklers are chipping in about $6 billion to fund these settlement trusts. Without the releases, they're not going to contribute anything. Well, let's get a little bit more into how the justices seem to respond to these positions. You reported that the majority of the justices seem to be a bit leery of shutting down the releases. What exactly did they ask during arguments? Just like in most arguments before the Supreme Court, uh, the justices are careful not to reveal what positions they're taking, but you can read into their questioning a little bit uh, to reveal and predict what you think they might do, right? So Justice Clarence Thomas was very curious about whether the U.S. trustee was taking the position that the relevant section of the code would bar consensual releases, too, where a creditor agrees to give up their property rights and their claims against the debtor and a third party. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh expressed some real interest in whether the U.S. trustee even has the right to raise this challenge, whether it has standing to challenge these provisions when it's not a financial party to the case. And uh, critically, Justice Kavanaugh also pointed to the last three decades of bankruptcy practice during which these releases have been permitted in very narrow circumstances and asked why the court should even think about upending that practice. And that, to me, signals a willingness to keep these releases alive as a viable way to handle these mass tort liabilities, uh, which are expressly allowed in the context of an asbestos case. But the courts have taken a wider interpretation of other strictures of the code to allow them in other cases. Well, you also reported that Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson was maybe the one who seemed a little more skeptical of the releases. What indicated that to you? 
So Justice Jackson's line of questioning seemed to really focus in on why these releases are necessary. So part of the calculus here to get a third-party release is that you have to make a substantial contribution to the estate, $6 billion in this case, but they also have to be necessary to the plan. Justice Jackson took issue with the way that things were handled before the bankruptcy. Justice Jackson's questions focused on where the money is coming from that the Sacklers are contributing to the estate. So it's been widely reported that the members of the Sackler family transferred more than $10 billion of assets out of the company before it filed for bankruptcy and offshored them into various trusts and other financial instruments uh, overseas. So the justice's point here was that the reason recovery might be difficult with absent the settlement is because of the Sacklers own pre-petition actions and they've made the releases necessary to a settlement by pledging not to return this money to the estate without this huge broad liability shield. So her questioning sort of condensed down what a lot of opponents of these releases have been saying for the last few years about the ability of large corporations to essentially buy their way out of these mass tort liabilities. Right, that makes sense. Well, this is such an such an important such an interesting case and you know, with bankruptcy in particular, I think a lot of us uh, need an expert like you to to help us navigate the unique waters to, uh, for lack of a better description of bankruptcy law here. Um, but Vince, thank you so much for joining us on Pro Se. Thank you very much. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex, you have you have the floor. I have the floor. I have the bathroom floor, I think. Oh, God. We return now to what can only be called the poop beat. Or probably more appropriately for or, or, or more specifically for us, the attorneys slash court officials making trouble with excrement related pranks beat. <laughs> I did want to, uh, I asked you, Haley, before we hit record today about, I had some vague memory of this and I did want to direct everybody to episode 262. That's from August of last year. And that's when we talked about a former Ohio court commissioner who was alleged to have sent feces in the mail to house member Jim Jordan. We talked about that. You can go back and see that. Iconic or, segment. Yeah, iconic. go back and listen to that. We also, it was it was so iconic, we revived it at the end of last year's Thanksgiving show. But I flag that only to say that we are returning not only to the poop beat, but also to Ohio. So I don't know if there's some kind of magnetism about this. But the Ohio Supreme Court has suspended a local attorney for filling a Pringles can with his own feces and throwing it in the parking lot of a victim advocacy center just before he was slated to have a meeting, a, a pre-trial meeting that included a party from that advocacy center. So that's what we're dealing with here. There is so much to unpack here. The incorporation of the Pringles can, the the fact that this was in the parking lot of a victim advocacy center of all parking lots. I mean, well, this isn't like a like a Walmart parking lot. 
Well, as we'll learn, I mean, the parking lot might not have been an accident. I can't say. But yeah, to the point of the Pringles can, you know, I mean, I know Pringles is always experimenting with new flavors. Oh, no. And new combinations. <laughs> but like, this is not, I don't think this is what they had in mind, frankly. I mean, I'm not in the boardroom. I don't know what they're looking at. But this is not what we're talking about, I don't think. I, I think that's a, a fair assumption. Okay. <laughs> I suppose this person deserves to be outed. Um, who is the attorney who is constructing these cursed, this cursed Pringles product? Well, let me tell you, the attorney in question is a man named Jack Allen Blakesley. And if you're sitting here and you're wondering why would he have thrown a Pringles can full of his own excrement, or I mean, human excrement. I don't know if it was detailed or if it was, <laughs> if, it, if it was DNA tested, but it's a reasonable assumption. And, you know, hurl it into a parking lot. It's not a straightforward answer. The Ohio Supreme Court's opinion, uh, which kind of assessed this whole case, it does have some notes in there, which said that Blakesley, you know, claims to have regularly left Pringles cans full of his excrement in random locations as what they called a prank, a goof. <laughs> a goof. He's doing a goof, if you will. But at another time, he claimed that he did so as a form of protest, sort of a, a respectful protest. But he never could really clarify what exactly he was trying to protest. And <laughs> oh, my God. The story kind of kind of fell apart from there. And I did want to flag an instructive quote from the Ohio Supreme Court in this disciplinary report. Quote, despite societal standards of cleanliness and decorum, Blakesley failed to control his own bizarre impulses to place <laughs> feces-filled cans out in public for unsuspecting people to find. His aberrant conduct has adversely reflected on his own fitness to practice law and brought discredit to the profession through significant media attention. <laughs> so even before we get into the motivation of why he did it, the court here is clearly saying, like, like regardless of why, the mere fact that you did it is kind of unbecoming of the legal profession uh, <laughs> when you consider that the courts are meant to carry out the will of the people, the will of the common good, and all of that. So, yeah. Well, uh, perhaps the will of the people is poop pranks. I don't know. No, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it could be, I suppose. But, I mean, they didn't do a poll or anything. <laughs> I don't, uh, I want to I, I sort of zoom in on the exact incident here is, uh, it occurred in 2021 when uh, Blakesley put the sullied, Pringles can in the parking lot of a facility called Haven of Hope, and that is a victims advocacy center. They are a center for, for the victims of violent crimes, you know, a halfway house it's sometimes called, whatever. But this occurred mere minutes before he attended a pretrial meeting in a murder case that he was defending that Haven of Hope CEO would be attending. So... This calls into question, again, whether this is a normal thing to do. It's not a normal thing to do. What am I saying? I'm not equivocating. <laughs> it's not a normal thing to do. But even if it was something that he claims to have done arbitrarily, randomly, this was a material fact. Um, and there was a lot of back and forth 
from the Supreme Court over whether this poop can was targeted at the center specifically, considering that, and again, this is from information that Blakeslee provided to the Supreme Court itself. And again, this was a defense, Haley. He said he had dropped at least 10 other poopy Pringles cans <laughs> at random locations just that year in 2021. Just in 2021, what a poop-filled year for him. And that he was just like, oh, it was just something, I'm just this kind of wild guy who leaves pooped Pringle cans <laughs> at random locations. And then there's like a lot of like back and forth about like whether and to what extent the location of this incident specifically was random. But ultimately, the court wasn't buying it. Uh, they said that they took all these data points into consideration, the idea that he drove a long way to do it, and then he was literally on his way to hold a meeting that was, that was also attended by an adverse party. But in any case, um, he was suspended for a year, and that, is, uh, that includes a stay of six months, which kind of transpired while all this was, was going on, on the condition, I will say, Haley, that he not <laughs> engage in any more misconduct. And listen, I am here to report the news, and I'm here to report the news that the Ohio Supreme Court told a practicing attorney in the state, you can only continue to practice if you don't put your poop in a Pringles can <laughs> and leave it at random locations. That is the bar that has been established for this <laughs> person specifically. I look, we don't know the guy, but I am worried that we might not be he might not be able to uh, follow through on this order. I mean, it seems like he's got quite a habit. It could be. I don't know. I can't say. Um, but when I was reading about this and preparing to talk about it, I did think about the long-running Pringles. I don't even know if it's the slogan anymore, but I did think about once you poop, you can't stoop. Oh, boy. And oh. I think that's what he subscribes to because this is a <laughs> compulsion, as you said. This is like a compulsive thing. It's, just, it's interesting that it's always Pringles cans. <laughs> well, <laughs> it'd be one thing if it were... I mean, I'm not saying it'd be any better, but what if, you know, every now and again, it's a Fritos bag or like an Oreo box. I don't know. <laughs> I would let you rattle off snack food poop vehicles for another hour. I really would. But it's in the interest of saving yourself and saving the show. I think that's as good a place as any to end it. I thought this was a tremendous show. And I thank you, Haley, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. We also have many people to thank for helping us put this show on. That includes our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. I also want to thank our guest, Vince Sullivan, and our contributing reporters, Haley Fowler and Ryan Haroff. Music from the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can find us. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, just please head to our website, that's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week.